The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg. Good morning, friends. If you can find your way back to your seats, grab your Bible. Go ahead and get started. And please open your copy of God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 21. We have a good bit of text to get through. We're going to be from chapter 21, verse 1, through the first eight verses of chapter 23. As we progress through the rest of Jeremiah, uh, we will be taking slightly longer chunks. Um, and so we want to do our best to make sure that we're, uh, we're paying attention. So you do well to have your Bible open during the course of the sermon. You'll be helped by the references as we go along. Let's begin with prayer. In our minds, to the truth by your spirit, who is the, the teacher and the comforter and the helper of Christians, we pray that you would illuminate this, the, the scripture to us. We would see clearly the, the power of uh, a leader that teaches, practices righteousness and justice, that cares for, loves, defends, and protects his people, and above all, God, that we, our eyes would be set on you, fixed on Christ, and uh, yeah, committed to the cause and the work of our trusting you. So we commit this remainder of our time together to you, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning... as if uh, my own leadership, or perhaps your leaders, although we do recognize that there are parallels to all sorts of authorities and leaders from the scripture to our world, nor do I want to make a strong connection between the leadership and the authority we speak of here in Jeremiah to the political leaders and authority we see in our own culture, in our own governments. Of course, as we read scripture, it is profitable for all righteousness. There is wisdom to be found. There is, uh, there is gifts of grace and righteousness which can and should be applied to all arenas of life, including the political arena. And there are ways that we should hold our own leaders, political or otherwise, to a certain standard. And scriptures lay out that standard quite well. But I want us to be weary of any who take the Old Testament or passages about kings and rulers. today or to leaders within the church. Although, of course, there are overlaps, our goal today is to examine the nature of leadership, particularly the failed leadership of Judah and its kings and the perfect leadership of Yahweh, the true king and our true leader. So as much as we recognize authority and leader in positions in the arenas all around us, we want to turn our attention not to men but to God. So have that in front of your mind this morning as we make our way through the text. And as I mention authority, and I mention leadership, you would do well to think of those in your life, but we are to land on the highest form of authority and the perfect expression of leadership that is God, particularly that is Christ. One thing we should recognize, if we haven't already, is that humanity has a leadership problem, doesn't it? In fact, all leaders, rightly, are misleaders. 
There is no perfect person, and therefore there is no perfect leaders. Leaders, by God's grace and providence, may lead well. And we can praise and celebrate leaders who do good, who lead well. But even the best of leaders, who are men, will mislead others at some point. You know this immediately once you begin to open up your eyes even as a child and see that your parents who once were perfect before you now are not. That they too make mistakes. Even from an early age. That we should not give them the idea that we are parents who are perfect. But as we practice repentance and confession, we teach them very early on that their dad and their mother are not. That the only perfect father is he who is in heaven. The only perfect one is he who governs us all. Humanity has a leadership problem because all leaders ultimately are misleaders. We fail, and we fail to lead perfectly because we are not perfect ourselves. We are sinful. Our hearts are corrupt and prone to selfishness, deceit, manipulation. We seek often our own gain. Even the best of leaders who would serve others and set aside their preferences for the sake of others at some point and at some time will act corruptively. They will act not like a leader, but like an abuser, an authoritarian, a totalitarian, somebody who governs with might or with a sword rather than with righteousness or justice. Any one of us put under a microscope in the positions of our own leadership, whether that's at home, at work, in the church, or elsewhere, we'll find that we have fallen far short of what it means to be a true, perfect, and godly leader. What happens when it's clear that every earthly leader will fail where God's leadership alone can succeed? When we recognize that all the leaders in our, our world and in our life are compared to God, miserable leaders. What happens when the pastor we trust disappoints us or hurts us? Or the parents who are tasked to, to care for us and lead us end up not seeking our best interest? What happens when our boss or our employer steals from us? What happens when our friends, our co-workers, those we look to as examples end up burning us? We recognize that only God can succeed at these things. Well, the people who continue to trust in themselves and entrust in other leaders that they put in their place will always and constantly be disappointed. That will be the reality of our human existence. The more we trust in human leaders and our human authority as ultimate will constantly lead to disappointment, discouragement, maybe even disillusionment. But those who turn to the Lord those whose trust is in the Lord as a supreme authority, as the ultimate leader in their life, for their life, for the life of their family, they will reap the reward of an everlasting kingdom. They recognize that God alone is perfect, and therefore He alone perfectly leads. He alone expresses perfect leadership, authority. He alone is worthy of our absolute submission, and obedience. And because no other human leader or authority can garner this level of submission, we would do well. Earthly man. Now again, as a caveat, I do not say that all earthly authority is bad. Much of authority in our lives is good and is placed there by God. And so 
Christians, you would do well to listen and obey the authority in your life because Paul tells us in Romans that submission to government and earthly authority is submission to God who put that authority there. Even tyrants, Paul would say. Even masters who are harsh and abusive to their slaves, Paul tells them that these were put in their life by God. And that though we can speak of the evils of slavery, though we can speak against the harshness of those who are in authority, not abuse or misuse that authority, we can also recognize the authority can still be honored and submitted to. Both Paul and Peter and the entire New Testament tell us that what Jesus does is allow us to recognize that our submission to even earthly authority, authority of men, that there is no king, no president, no boss, no master who is put in place on their own authority, but is there by God's. And so ultimately they answer to him, just as we do. And so we will be learning in the New Testament that slaves obey their masters in obedience to God. That even wives will submit to their husbands as the authority in their home as obedience to God. That even men must obey authority of the government and other leaders in their lives as obedience and submission to the authority of God. That there is no ultimate authority that any one man possesses. No king, no council, no board of elders, no pastor, no boss, no master. God alone possesses all authority. That is true. And it is our lives around. Humanity has a leadership problem. Not only in the sense that there are no perfect leaders, but there are no perfect submission to leaders. That even if there was a good and righteous leader before us, our own hearts would rebel against him or her that we have a leadership problem in our own hearts. The very same reason there are no perfect leaders is the very same reason we would not submit to perfect leadership even if it presented itself. Humanity has a leadership problem. And so what happens when we recognize that there are no perfect leaders and we would not obey a perfect leader without the help of God, we must not turn to other leaders, to other men or more impressive, charismatic people that we can place in front who can garner the respect or the praise be in God alone who succeeds where all men fail. That is the theological truth this morning behind what we'll read in Jeremiah 21 and 23. We're going to do this just by quickly looking at the text and then spending some time examining how we might be exhorted from the text to live in light of this truth. In the first 10 verses of chapter 21, we see that Zedekiah, who is the last king of Judah before they are thrown into Babylon captivity, finally seeks God's help by sending some priests. Because what has happened is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has now encamped outside of the gates. And Nebuchadnezzar knows the history of Israel. Several generations previously, King of Assyria had camped outside the gates of Israel. And King Hezekiah, at the point, turned to Isaiah and said, what should I do? And Isaiah told him, do this, which Hezekiah did, and they were spared. And so, King Zedekiah seeks this same outcome. 
he comes to Jeremiah. But Jeremiah ain't Isaiah. And Judah ain't Israel. And so he does not get the answer he's looking for. Listen to what it says in the first 10 verses, chapter 21 of Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from Pashur, the son of Malachiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Masiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make, us, make him withdraw from us. Well, Jeremiah said to him, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you were fighting against the king of Babylon and against, against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. I will bring them together into the midst of this city and I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm and anger and fury and great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. Afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword and famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword, and he shall not pity or spare them or have compassion. people of the city who follow Zedekiah. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Not the answer Zedekiah was hoping for. In fact, what we see upon further reflection of this, the language that Jeremiah chooses to use, or the language God uses in speaking through Jeremiah to Zedekiah, re resonates with that of the same Exodus, the great and mighty arm of God outstretched to bring Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. The great and mighty deeds he has done to deliver his people once. He will do as great and mighty, this time not to deliver, but to judge. It is a reversal of the Exodus. The same sort of signs of the plagues we see come up here now again. Famine, pestilence, an invading army, and captivity. Much of what is celebrated in Passover, as they would know well, that God delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians into the land that he promised to their father is now being taken back and rolled back, reversing one by one as they are led again into the hands of an enemy. This is a reversal of the exodus taking place through God's judgment because they seem to have already worshipped the gods of other nations as you've seen in several chapters before. So God lays before him the only real way to escape such judgment is to just give yourself into the hands of the enemy now. Surrender, he says, and you will live. And you'll keep your life. That, that way will lead to death. That's what he says in verses 8 through 10. So Zedekiah finally seeks God's help after rebellion, a rebellion against resistance, resistance against, after not listening to Jeremiah, against 
following the ways of the other kings before him. He finally goes because Nebuchadnezzar is outside the gates of the city and says, will you ask the Lord what he wants us to do that we might be spared? And he says, I'll ask. And God says, no. Time for judgment has come. He's there at the gates. So the answer is, if you really want to survive, you should just embrace the fact that you will be led into captivity. Zedekiah, he'll be killed. Those who stay and fight, they, their way is death. The best you can hope for is that I will spare your life through allowing the Babylonians to take you into captivity, which many will do. Later on in chapters 21, verses 11, through the first nine verses of chapter 22, Jeremiah then turns and challenges and warns all the Davidic kings of Judah in a great line of succession. And he challenges the people who would follow these kings. We see that the reason for this is because these leaders and these rulers who were of the Davidic line were messing up the job that they were given to do. So he says, Enter the house of the king of Judah, this unnamed king, whoever may sit on the throne, hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord. He speaks here to the household of David. Now remember, God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would always have an heir who would sit on a throne whose kingdom would go forever. But this wasn't an unconditional covenant. It was conditioned upon the obedience and the righteousness of the kings of David's line fulfilling their end of the law. If they failed to do so, God would not give them or grant them the throne. So he speaks to the household of David, a promised lineage who had covenantal responsibilities, responsibilities of faithfulness, responsibilities of justice, of integrity, of righteousness. Their job was to uphold the integrity of God's representative on earth. To Those days were to function just as much as a priest, as one who would oversee the worship as anyone in the temple. In fact, turn with me for a moment to Psalm 132 and read what others have said. In fact, David's own son, Solomon. Psalm 132. And just in verse 11 and 12. This is a song of a sense. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he would not turn back. That's the oath he swore in 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of your sons, one of the If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So what's the promise? You will have a line on the throne forever. What's the condition? They must keep the covenant. They must obey God's word. They must keep and obey the testimonies and the statutes that God would give them. Go back to Psalm 72. This is Solomon's own prayer about what the kingship, his own kingship, should be like. The standard for all the Davidic kings. So that when Jeremiah speaks to the household of David, the kings of Davidic lineage, 
This is the standard that he has in mind of which they fall very, very short. Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O Lord, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills and righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound to the moon be no more. The ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made to him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may the people in blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all the nations call him blessed. This is the standard of righteousness the king must meet. This is what is said back in Jeremiah when he says to the household of David, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. The point is, the Davidic lines, Zedekiah and on back, even the failed reforms of Josiah, really all the way back to Solomon who began to lead the nation into idolatry and into false worship, ultimately splitting the kingdoms and starting the downturn of their great nation as we see it. They did not practice justice. They did not seek righteousness. They did not rule with equity. They were not peaceful, but they practiced evil things. They incurred the wrath of God. Jeremiah holds out this standard with the language of what God had called them to be and shows that these leaders have failed them and they have only to blame themselves. There in verses 3 through 4, we see the extraordinary blessings of what covenant faithfulness would bring. In chapter 22, and he says that do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien to the fatherless or the widow or shed any innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, that is, meet the standard of righteousness with the Davidic king the dynasty must have met, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David and their servants and their people. That's the amazing blessing that would come from God's hand if the king from the Davidic lineage would fulfill his obligations. But we see just after that, the terrible price of covenant faithlessness 
He goes on to say, but if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself. He makes an oath on his own head, God does, declares to the Lord that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, yet surely I will make you a desert and uninhabited city. This thick, beautiful forest full of cedar and oak, teeming with life, will lay bare and desert before the Lord because of his wrath against them. He says, I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. To his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt like this with the great city? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of their God and worshipped other gods and served them. So Jeremiah here challenges and warns all the Davidic kings of Judah who would come, Zedekiah and all before them, and the people who would follow after them, that the outcome of such leadership and those who submit to such leadership is destruction. The only way to receive the full blessing of the covenant promises of God is to obey his word. And this they have not done. As we continue through chapter 22 and verses 10 through 30, there's a specific list of Judah's very last kings. We've already mentioned Zedekiah, which is the very last of them, but then the ones that would come before them, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachim called by different names in some parts here. And the people are warned about their leadership and what would happen to them and what would happen to the people if they followed and continued to follow in their footsteps. So in verses 13 through 17, we see that all the... and are practicing evil and injustice, using their own position for their own gain. So in chapter 13 of verse 22, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think that you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Cause of the poor and the needy, then it was well. Is this not, is this, is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for placing, practicing oppression and violence. The father here, he talks to maybe Josiah as he practiced reforms within Israel to try and get rid of the false worship and return to the true worship of God. It may also refer to David, of course, the originator of the covenant with God, who did indeed, man after God's own heart, seek to practice these things. Or maybe the beginning of Solomon's reign, who was the wisest of all kings and did indeed practice some justice before he fell in with idolatries. The point is that those who follow God's word, they seek prosperity. But those who allow themselves to be corrupted by their evil desires and seek and use their position for their own gain, work against the Lord and indeed find the Lord working against them. He says, what it is to know me is to practice righteousness and justice. But in verse 17, he says, your eyes and your hearts are only for dishonest gain. They're only for the shedding of innocent blood. So the kings are corrupt and evil, and they use their position for their own gain. But later in verses 21 and 22, we see that corruption at the level of authority, these kings trickles down and distorts the righteous obedience of those under that authority. 
He says that I spoke to you. This is God again to the people. I spoke to you, verse 21, in your prosperity, but you said I will not listen. They hardened their hearts and stopped up their ears. He says, this has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds, and your lovers shall go into captivity. And then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all of your evil. What happens here is that the corruption at the level of authority, the kings and the other shepherds of Israel, that would be the, the priests and the prophets even, would trickle down and they would lead, or rather mislead, the rest of the people into their own corruption, into the distortion of their own righteous and disobedience. Those who are under corrupt authority will themselves be corrupted by it. And so the only recourse for the people is to attend to God's word, to supersede and even bypass this ungodly leadership and attend to God and his word alone. So he says in verse 29, O land, 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 his people, hear the word of the Lord. So in the midst of these scathing rebukes against God's kingdom and his kings, he says that the only recourse for the people is to attend to God's word not to these false leaders, corrupt and evil in all their ways. Their only true hope is God's word. Their only true way from this captivity is not by following these leaders to the mouth of oppressors, but to seek God. And so we end then by looking in verse 1 through 8 of chapter 23, where God then offers promise and hope and he rewrites the past and even the present for a better future. Now, as we look at this, we see that it will be partially fulfilled in the coming generations of Judah as they are restored again out of captivity, allowed to come back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but will never recover fully the greatness and the glory of the nation of Israel that they once were promised. But ultimately, this promise will come to its full fruition in Christ, which unfolds in the New Testament and ultimately in its larger consummation and fulfillment at the end of days when Jesus... So he says, Woe to the shepherds, this is chapter 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Woe to them. Destruction is on their way. They must be careful. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock. And have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. How frightening a promise of judgment if you were a shepherd of Israel in those days. But the promise here in verse 3, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any missing be any missing, declares the Lord. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness 
Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of all the countries where he had driven them, and then they shall dwell in their own land. Three promises come by way of hope here as God rewrites the past and the present. Of course, he looks back all the way to Genesis and promises a new Notice he says there in verse 3 that he will gather the remnant of his flock, all of those which were captive in other countries, and he will bring them back into the fold, and there they shall be fruitful and multiply. Now, where have we heard that phrase before? In the garden, right? When God had placed man and woman in paradise, giving them the command to be fruitful and multiply. This is an extension of the Edenic scene in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, this perfect place where God dwelled perfectly with man. There were no kings there. The only authority was the authority of God with his people in covenant relationship. Adam, as he delegated authority and exercised dominion, did so. So here the language that God says to Jeremiah is that he will bring to himself and establish from the remnant of Israel a new creation. He will, not by wiping out all others, but by saving a remnant within this condemned world, a new people. And he will start with a new Adam. This, of course, is Christ who comes and he does not fail where Adam had, that first Adam, but succeeds against all odds, against the temptation of the enemy, against the oppression of evil men, even against death itself, he overcomes perfect in obedience, righteousness, justice. He sacrifices himself and he becomes for us the new and better Adam. And he establishes in his own life and his own And if any are in Christ, you are what? A new creation. He begins this symbolically with the 12 he picks to be the apostles and the disciples. He picks 12, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel, those 12 sons of Jacob. Because he is showing that he is starting new. A new people, a new nation, a new kingdom, a new creation. This is what Peter says, that the church becomes a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Different. Not because we aren't sinners, not because we are perfectly righteous, but he in whose new image we are created is righteous. You and I are born in the image of our father Adam. We inherit an unrighteous nature, sinful and corrupt. But when we are converted, we inherit a new nature, Christ's. This is why we can say that he has become a sin for us and we would become righteousness particularly the righteousness of God. So in verse 6, when he says that this shepherd who comes would be called the Lord is our righteousness, it is a literal righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And so we receive the promise of a new creation here. Again, in some sense, this is fulfilled even in the next generations that would follow as they are led out of captivity back into the promised land and they rebuild the temple. But the greater fulfillment comes in the person and work of Christ. And it will come ultimately 
when all of creation mirrors what God has done when he returns again. But there is another promise here. It is not only the promise of a new creation, but in verses 4 through 6, this promise of a new shepherd, a better and perfect ruler. Of course, we know Christ, this one who comes from the land that David comes from, Bethlehem, the Davidic rule and lineage that was promised to him. He says, the shoot of David, the branch that comes from the tree of David's root. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. So not only will he rule righteously, but he will come to defend and protect and sit on the throne in perfect power and glory. Not even David would have such a perfect and godly rule. Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So we are promised a new creation that God will bring together a people for himself and make a new people from the remnant. And he will set over them many new shepherds, rulers, and leaders, but place above them all one true and chief shepherd. And so today we have, as head of the church, that remnant and that people who were created in the image of God and recreated in the image of Christ now serves under the authority of many under-shepherds, but all who who serve under the authority of Jesus, our good shepherd, who has laid his life down for the sheep. The means by which we are gathered as a new creation is the death and the blood of Jesus. It is the covenant by which he establishes in his blood that we are drawn together and we participate in the new kingdom reality as new creatures under a new and greater Adam, our chief shepherd, Christ. And we are promised not just this new creation and not just a new shepherd, but again, a new and a greater exodus would come. As one who came out of the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan and reversed now through the judgments leading from freedom into captivity under Babylonian, partially fulfilled out of the Babylonian into Jerusalem again, but ultimately and completely finally fulfilled in Christ as he delivers our souls from the domain of darkness and redeems us from destruction and ruin. We are promised in verse 7 and 8. Therefore, behold, the days are coming when we won't speak of the exodus as the great work of God to deliver us. But we will speak, Judah says, of the great exodus out of Babylon, that enemy of the north, back into the country where we have. But even then, we will speak of a greater exodus beyond that of just Judah out of the hand of the Babylonians and into Jerusalem, but of the domain of darkness from which we have been delivered and from the ruin from which we have been redeemed. Jesus, we have read in Colossians chapter 2 in our New Testament reading this morning, says that he delivers us from the domain of darkness because he overcame and conquered the enemy. In fact, turn there again and read with me just what God has accomplished in the deliverance. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, it says that in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Beautiful picture of of Christology there. Fully divine and man. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Perfect shepherd, keeper of the people. Not corrupt like the kings of Judah. Even the best of leaders of men fail where he alone succeeds. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is, as we believe, we are united to him by faith, and what we are united to is not just the blessings, but the very work that he accomplished for us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Us, each one of us, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God conquers our enemies and delivers us from the domain of darkness by defeating sin on the cross. How are we delivered? Ultimately, completely, finally? Not simply to be given back into the hands of the enemy because we sin, but living stably and securely in the land that God promises. It is only because we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and redeemed from ruin because of the blood of Jesus. He nailed our sin. to the cross. He takes the ledger book of our lives, that which we owe God because of our unrighteousness, and he cancels it. He cancels it. But God must punish sin, and so he cancels it by becoming a substitute for us. This is why he must go to the cross. He sets aside the legal demands, not simply by ignoring them, but nailing it to the cross. He becomes for us the curse. He bears for us our iniquity, God's wrath against our sin poured out on him. And by doing this willfully and joyfully, he disarms the rulers. He disarms the authorities. He puts them to shame and he triumphs over them. This is what a new exodus looks like. The promise of a new creation, a new shepherd, and a new exodus for the people of God. But what do we do with this? We'll first acknowledge by way of exhortation that Knowing God means acknowledging his lordship with your whole life. Remember back in Jeremiah chapter 22, he says, is this not what it means to know God? Is this not what it means to know God? By practicing righteousness, by doing what God commands. The priests, the leaders, the rulers, to know God means to acknowledge him in his lordship over their whole life. Not just a name and a pretense, all things. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? That many will come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? They'll claim that they know God. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Why? Because their works did not save them. And yet their works betray them. To know God means acknowledging his lordship over their whole life, not just in their speech, not just in their deeds, but in their whole person, their whole body, their whole life. So friends, as you and I consider what it means to know God, we must study to know him so that we can acknowledge more deeply and intimately his lordship over our lives in every area. His lordship over your life in your relationships. Lordship over your life in your finances. His lordship over your life and where you decide to live and move and stay. His lordship over your life and which job you decide to take. His lordship over your life and which direction you decide to go in leading your children to one school or another. His lordship over your life and which movies you decide to watch or which music you decide to listen to. His lordship over your life and which clothes you decide to wear. 
That's what it means to truly submit yourself to a king who has given life and say that you worship God. You can't give half of yourself over and reserve the rest for yourself. Knowing God means to be known by God, and this only happens when you acknowledge the lordship of Christ over all of your life. But secondly, we must look to Christ, not simply as Lord, but as King over all. And in doing so, we will ensure our own faithfulness and prosperity. We look not to the false leaders and shepherds of our world, but to Christ alone. Knowing that he has all authority, submitting to his lordship means looking to him always. And doing so, ensuring our faithfulness and prosperity. We can follow in his footsteps and not be afraid that we will fall into sin. We cannot say that with any other ruler. If I told you to follow me, and you did so in every step, and undoubtedly you will fall into sin where I have fallen into sin. I don't care if you're talking about John Piper, John Carson, insert famous theologian, or your great-grandfather who has never done wrong in your eyes. You follow, you sin. Only Christ and his lordship will ensure our faithfulness and prosperity as we follow him. But how do we seek him? Where do we find him? How do we know what it looks like? Well, we do so, and we see him by the Spirit. The Spirit manifests Christ present to us as he leads us in all truth. We spoke about this this morning in our Sunday school. That the Spirit leads us to see Christ where our eyes were once blind to. But not only by the Spirit do we see Christ, but we see him in the Word. This is the plead of Jeremiah. Lord, May their word, your word, be seen among the people. O land, Jerusalem, heed, listen, obey the word of God. So if you do not read the Bible, you will not see God. Coming to church and listening to me alone will not suffice for seeing Christ through his word. You see him by the spirit, you see him in the word, you also see him through your prayer as you come to know him and depend. and what you need, but through the dependence you have on him in all things. You can praise God in prayer as much as you can ask of him. Again, we also see him as we gather together as a church. There is something unique when we gather, praise, and worship, and sing, and take the Lord's Supper that magnifies the presence of God together. Where else, where else do you come together and sing harmoniously with other Christians, or maybe not so harmoniously, what it means to worship God? You do that with the church. All of this is meant to set our gaze upon Christ so that we will not stumble and fail. But I promise you, if you turn your attention, your gaze on any other man or leader, Christ in these ways, spirit, word, prayer, and church. And lastly, consider that the final and the full fulfillment and the complete consummation of God's promises here should actually keep us from straying. Yes, we look to Christ through these things, and we acknowledge his lordship over our whole life. But the full consummation of the promise that these things are yet to be will keep us motivated to faithfulness. It will keep us from straying. That there are promises that God has made that are as of yet unfulfilled. And that is, like in Psalm 22, eating at the feast table of God in the presence of the enemy. Jesus himself says that I will not drink wine again until I meet with you in the heavens and new earth. This full and final fulfillment will come when Jesus returns again. And so it's to that hope we ultimately look. If Jesus doesn't return, the fullness of the promises of God never become a reality. 
The only way that everything we have promised and in some small way taste today becomes real is if Jesus returns and puts his flag in the ground of this world and says, I will rule. That all of those who have competed with his, his authority bend the knee. This happens when we trust and hope in the return of Jesus. Calculations of when it, we obey and what we should do. So consider what it means to look to Christ and to trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we trust you for this. We acknowledge your lordship over us, even if in our own life we don't practice that. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins, and we have turned to other rulers and authorities, and we've followed them. We can even be led astray and deceived by rulers and authorities who promise that they're trying to obey you, that if we follow them, we will be following you, but many have led us astray. Worst of all, our own hearts, we have propped up as an authority and as a ruler against your rule. But God, we heed the warnings here in Jerusalem that says, or Jeremiah that says, that the only way to truly be sure of our security is to look to you and not to earthly rulers and powers. And the way we recognize the goodness of that authority, we recognize our obligation at times to submit to that authority, you alone have a place of authority in our lives. So we trust you for that and ask that you would reveal ways in which we have neglected your authority, turn away from All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.